I think part of why sometimes you, you don't do things that are unconventional is because you think, you know what, this season may not go the way I want, and I don't want anybody to point at either my work ethic or that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I think those two things drive a lot of people to go, well, you know what, nobody's going to outwork me. And Frank DeFord one time, the late sports writer, said something like, you know, if there was any industry in which the CEO said, I cannot get my job done in 12 or 14 hours, I've got to put in 16 to 18, they'd go, you know what, we're going to fire you and find somebody a little smarter. (laughs) (laughs) He said, but not football. That one's the one where we're like, great, we need you here the full 18 hours. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Nathan Whitaker. Nathan is the co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Quiet Strength, Tony Dungy's memoir. Whitaker has also co-authored Uncommon, The Mentor Leader, Through My Eyes with Tim Tebow, and others. He is also the founder of Whitaker Partners, LLC, a firm specializing in the representation of coaches and front office personnel. In this episode, we learn about Nathan's improbable journey to becoming a best-selling author. We also discuss the harsh realities of life in the NFL and the toll it takes on families. Finally, Nathan reveals some of the amazing lessons he's learned from his time with Coach Dungy and what it means to be a man of character and conviction. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Nathan, glad to have you on today. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be on. Absolutely. Well, for such an accomplished person, I mean, you had 10 books on the New York Times bestseller list. It seems like it kind of took you a while to hit your stride in regards to your career. Do you mind unpacking your journey for us a little bit? Maybe we can start with when you went to Duke and your aspirations to be a big league ball player. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so it it really has been a uh, circuitous route. And and as you said, I I headed off to Duke. I was actually recruited to play baseball. And the baseball coach at the time said that, you know, I hear I was 6'2", 150 pounds. And he said, you know what, we're just going to throw you in and let you play every day and let you grow into your frame. And... Once I was there, I also walked on in football and was playing for Coach Spurrier up there. Oh, um, sweet. Yeah, so I, ha- I had aspirations in two sports. Maybe one of the two would work out. Can I ask you a question? Was he coaching shirtless at the time? <laughs> Occasionally. Okay. Occasionally, yeah. Right. And now at the time, he was also 45. So it was probably, <laughs> uh, he was a lot closer to his playing days then, but he still is uh, he's still going at it even at this age. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe you know one of the two sports, loved them both. And sure enough, the baseball coach who had these plans for me got fired as I was arriving on campus. Mm. So I came into a totally new coaching staff. They wanted their own guys. They did not think it was a good idea to play me every day, probably because they liked winning. Um, (laughs) So I played sporadically for a year and then came to the conclusion that maybe I'd just stick with football. Mm. And so I played one year of baseball and then uh, four years of football. But again, football was not a whole lot different than baseball in that I played a little bit. But it was quickly apparent I didn't have a career ahead of me. And Mm. I was an English major, but certainly didn't think I would necessarily be a writer, maybe going into journalism or something like that. But there there was one creative writing class that Duke offered and had to submit a writing sample and all that. And I was rejected. So I had a, a professor ask me a few years ago when I was speaking at Duke, asked about, you know, clearly your Duke degree got you headed down the path toward writing. And I said, actually, <laughs> it took me 17 years to overcome my experience at Duke and be willing to write a book. How about that? Yes. So uh, maybe they knew something. But anyway, I'd like to think that I've, I've improved since then. But so got out of college with no professional sporting career ahead of me and not exactly sure what the rest of the answer should be. So I went to law school, partly to buy time and partly my dad's an attorney and I thought it might be a decent experience. And so, and also had done really, really well on the LSAT. 
So was fortunate enough to get into Harvard. And that was another reason where I thought... Fortunate enough, huh? Yes. Well, I'm pretty good at <laughs> test taking. And so with go. my LSAT score, everybody's got a special talent, right? Mine's standardized testing. Mm. So I went to Harvard. Great experience as far as being around people much smarter than me, whether it was the professors, my other fellow students, just a great experience. Need to live in the Northeast for three years in a major city for a, a guy from... Gainesville, Florida, and then Durham, North Carolina. It was a neat experience for me. But when I finished, still didn't think I wanted to practice law. So I ended up clerking for a federal judge for two years. Another great experience. He's at the uh, trial level. And so I was seeing the ins and outs of some of the best attorneys in the country, the U.S. attorneys. And then- What was the hot law show on TV at the time? It was LA Law. LA Law. Were you you kind of thinking, okay? Not initially, but then, you know, we, we would end up with the attorney for in the um, the William Kennedy Smith case. And the, I mean, those were the people coming into our courtroom and not only coming to our courtroom, but, but when you called their offices because the judge had a question or we had some sort of filing deadline, whatever it was, you could get straight through to these attorneys. And I knew even then I knew there's no way at 25 that I'm ever getting through to these folks ever again. Uh, but if I'm calling on behalf of the judge, then maybe I can... Uh, Anyway, it was, it was a neat experience. Right. And so really enjoyed it and finished that and thought, you know, maybe I should practice law for a bit. I've seen these great experiences. I've seen these great attorneys, been around an amazingly smart, wise judge. So then I worked as an associate in a law firm for two years in Greensboro, North Carolina. Had chances to go to Atlanta, Charlotte, some other places. But my wife and I, I was newly married and we thought kind of going to a, a mid-sized city Okay, let's pause there. Where did you meet your wife? We met in Gainesville when I was 13 and she was 12. How about that? Okay, so you met 13 and 12. Did this last through Duke and Harvard? Didn't last through high school. We went to my junior prom and we went out one other time. And we were laughing about that the other day. We We just celebrated our 26th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I was kind of lamenting the fact that we didn't date throughout high school. And and I didn't see her. I didn't even lay eyes on her the whole time I was at Duke. Just the timing of fall breaks and being home and whatever were always uh, never seemed to coincide. And so I did not see her for four years of college. And the other day I said, man, we could be at 30 now. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, well, you were so immature that it actually would have totally died out if we had tried to date then. (laughs) And and I think she's probably right. So I knew. How old were you when you got married? I was 25 and she was 24. Okay. Okay. So I had, we, we, in fact, we ran into each other right after I started law school. I was back home from Boston and ran into each other and got engaged within six months and stayed engaged for two years long distance. She was at Flagler College in St. Augustine. So we were traveling back and forth to see each other, but it was two years of being engaged. And then we got married right after. So you become a Harvard man and you come back and it's like, boom, it's done. (laughs) In fact, one of her exes tried to get back in, in touch with her and she said, you know, I'm, I'm dating Nathan. And he said, oh, it's because of the Harvard thing. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, actually, I've known him since he was 13 and wearing plaid pants to church. So there you go. Yeah. So anyway, so we were uh, married and then trying to figure out, I had law firm or law school classmates who were at these huge firms in New York, Atlanta, other places. They loved it. They loved the action and the energy, but but I looked at that and thought, I don't, I don't think that's the lifestyle for me. I was still not entirely certain I wanted to practice law. Mm. And so the idea of, of some of the hours and the grind and the s- slim chance of making partner at some of these firms, I thought, let me try a different route. So I went to Greensboro, great firm, great group of people. My wife was teaching and loved it. Everything was perfect, except that I just could not stand the practice of law, especially the trial work. It was always, there was always conflict. There was always advocating on behalf of a client. Sometimes you So did you not realize this at Harvard? I mean, what was kind of the, I mean, because I've been to Harvard and that place, I didn't go to school there. I've walked around there (laughs) and there's this intoxicating feeling of, I can do anything. I don't know what Uh it is. That place is special. But like, did you, what were you wrapped up in about the law at Harvard that kind of changed later down the line? Well, I don't know if I was ever wrapped up in the law. It was a really neat experience, very intellectual, as you say, and you're around a ton of really smart folks. And so I had negotiations taught by 
a guy who was talking about a really contentious negotiation he went through and how they had to build a special round table and they put half of it uh, so that it stuck into one side, one party's side of things and the other half. So it stuck into another party's side of things. And, and you're thinking, this is the weirdest story I've ever heard. And then you realize, oh my gosh, Roger Fisher, my teacher, was one of the lead negotiators to settle the Korean War conflict. And that, that building still sits at the 37th parallel or wherever it is where they had to build half the table in North Korea and half the table in South Korea. Or I had Archibald Cox, who was special counsel for Watergate. He's coming in and talking. And so you had this sense of, oh my gosh, these people, you really could do anything. Yes. And so it was really unique from that standpoint. I was up there not long ago and, and I'm walking through the bookstore and they've got the faces just kind of in, in relief uh, on the walls. And you realize, you know, it's not just authors. It's like the greatest authors in American history, or it's not just like, you know, the president of the Rotary Club. It's actually the president of the United States. And next to that person is another president. And you realize, mm. okay, I'm not getting on any of these walls. And, <laughs> and that's okay. But there is this sense of you really can do most anything. And so fast forward, and I really had gotten into trial work because I had had this district court clerkship where I'd seen trial work. And I thought, okay, the thing that my skill set that I'm learning that would make sense for law firms is to get into that. I really think if I had done some sort of negotiations, contractual work, estate planning, something like that, that would have been more in my, where, where kind of my mindset was. Mm. Um, I just didn't enjoy the litigation practice of law. So Took me about a year to figure that out. And my wife was distressed because we loved Greensboro and the quality of life and all the attorneys. And it was, it was really great. Just the practice of law itself was, wasn't something I cared for. And so I started looking around, had an interview with the NCAA back when they were still in Kansas City or Overland Park and interviewed with them. And it was for an enforcement position. And I met with the last two people I met with. They had narrowed it down to three. They brought me in. And at the end, they were saying, hey, you know, we, we really think we'd like you to come if you want to be a part of, of us. And so everything was heading the right direction. The, the penultimate guy I met with right before the end of the day says something along the lines of, oh, you're from Gainesville. I know Gainesville well. I was in, in Florida, you know, throughout the 80s. For those of you who don't know, University of Florida had the NCAA. We may, they may have opened a satellite office in Gainesville <laughs> for all the things we were doing at UF. But you and Miami were still a lot of time. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Seemed like we couldn't do anything right back then. And, and so we deserved whatever we got. But one of the things he talked about, we then had a conversation. He talked about how it does kind of weigh on you, even when you enforce the rules and you're doing what you think is the right thing. There were coaches at Florida who really got caught up in things they didn't need to get caught up in. I mean, not, not that they were innocent, but that there was not malice, not whatever. I mean, one of the things was, you know, helping a player with something they couldn't afford kind of thing, right? Like hundred right. bucks here. And, a, and they ended up, you know, never coaching in college again. That's rough. And the enforcement folks were saying, you know, that's kind of heavy to live with when you feel like you're doing the right thing, but you realize at the end of the day, these are people's livelihoods that, that you're dealing with. And, and for better or worse, that kind of falls on you. So my final interview, we continued on these same themes and the guy said, well, let me just make this part clear for you. It's 50% of your life will be travel. You got to be on the road two weeks out of the month. So you're on the road half the year. And again, I'm a newlywed, not thinking I want to travel a ton. And right. he says, you're going to be on the road half the year. And then when you land, nobody wants to see you, right? The athletic director is going to get fired. The booster is going to get kicked out of the program. The player is going to lose their eligibility, et cetera. So you, and you don't have subpoena power. So you're you the most hated man in town. What a yeah, great job. You can't make anybody talk to you, but you have to get them to talk to you. And they're going to hate you the whole time. And I thought, okay, I thought I didn't like litigation. This sounds horrible. Right. And so I withdrew from that and was kind of concerned. I'd never find anything. The Kansas city Royals called. They needed an assistant director of scouting. They needed somebody to enter data into the computer that their scouts were sending in. That's kind of where it was in 1997 or so as they were getting computerized. And they said, um, they said, we'll pay you 20 grand for this role. And then, and then the director of scouting was funny. He's like, I'm on the phone with him. And he's like, and I don't know what we do with a Harvard law degree, but it sounds kind of cool. So we'll give you 25 grand for, for that because you've got the, and I, you, you go to Duke and Harvard and you get rewarded with $25,000. Right. After being out four years practicing law. Um, That's sports. Right. 
Totally. They don't care. No. Who don't. you are. Yeah. No. We could talk about that later, but I mean, it's earned yeah. your stripes all the way. Totally. And so I, I ended up passing on that as well, but those are the only two sniffs I had for about nine months. And so I thought Whoa. I may be stuck practicing law. And cause I was really trying to get into sports. I, I realized, okay, I can't do it as a player, but maybe I could do it with some of these other experiences and do it on the front office side. Finally got called by the Jacksonville Jaguars. They wanted an attorney to help with salary cap issues, contract negotiations with coaches and players. And so got hired to go to the Jaguars. And so that was a terrific blessing and a, a great way to get. Who was the head coach? Tom Coughlin. Tom Coughlin was the head coach. So did he hire you? It was uh, Michael Hugh was the uh, VP of personnel and football administration. So Michael hired me. Okay. But we all kind of worked for Coach Coughlin. Yep. Um, he ran He ran the ship. And what they needed that first year, though, was they, they had the, these designs that the role would grow with me being an attorney and the like. But what they really had an immediate need of, and this is the beginning of July when I got hired, was that the travel guy had left and gone to the New York Rangers or Islanders. Islanders. So they needed a travel guy. So they said, hey, we just need you to handle travel this first six months, get us through the season, and then we'll get you into the salary cap stuff. And looking back and realizing now that I write and I use whichever side of the brain is kind of the creative side, whatever the side is that needs to be really organized and make lists is the side that I'm weaker on. Uh. And so it was a really stressful six months as far as making seating charts and flight arrangements and meeting you, buses. You're the, the most curb. hated guy in the organization. Oh my gosh. Everybody, why am I sitting here? Or, you know, did, or the, the beauty was you're sitting there, you're waiting for the team to arrive. And all of a sudden, something in the back of your head says, oh my gosh, who called me and said they needed a hotel room for their mom? Right. And because you're running a million directions, there weren't texts back then. And so I had no record of it. So you pull out your Saved by the Bell uh, (laughs) mobile phone with like the crank on it and start calling the Marriott, right? Exactly. But it was a great experience for me. And it was one of those that I, I point to people and say, look, at the time I had a I had graduated cum laude from Duke. I had clerked for a federal judge, graduated cum laude from Harvard Law. And I'm driving a van to the airport with players who have just gotten cut in training camp and are weeping. And, you know, there's nothing that prepares you for this. This is not a career path that that you think is coming. And you kind of did whatever needed to be doing. You're meeting buses at five in the morning to make sure they're there an hour before the players have to go to whatever. And that was a great experience for me. The part that really was a challenge, though, was that despite having cell phones in Jacksonville and the like, it was a all hands on deck, all the time kind of environment. And so all the things I thought I wouldn't care for in the NCAA as far as travel and the like kind of came to roost in Jacksonville with my office, you know, just 10 miles from my house. So we moved out of the house for training camp. We had rented out a hotel that no, no women were allowed in the hotel. I totally get that. But that included my wife and three-week-old daughter. Wow. And I was forced to live in the hotel. So I would go out and, and in the lobby, I would see my three-week-old daughter during lunch. And then they'd drive back to Jackson or back to our house. And Can I tell, make a comment here? Yeah. Okay, that was 1998? Yes. 97. You know, we, 98. We both have a, a common experience in coming up to these situations. Uh-huh. Just a general commentary on that. I don't know how, I mean, football kind of has this lockdown culture, you know, during training camp, but does it need to be done that way? In your opinion? I I don't think so at all. And, you know, one of the things that had happened in early in the Jaguars experience, the night before the very first draft, before I arrived, they got a call at nine, back when the draft started Saturday morning and ran through to Sunday, they got a call at 9.30 Friday night, on the landline from Green Bay, offering Mark Brunel in trade. Okay. And so they ended up with the franchise quarterback. And so that was always told to me as the story of, you know, it'd be great to go home and rely on our, on our cell phones, but what if we're not here? And early, it was early days of cell phones, I get, but I still kept saying they can find us. They can, they can yeah. find us. I mean, if it's that, that important, they're going to make it happen. Right. And, and how many of those calls have you gotten over the, okay, you've gotten one in the five years since the Jaguar started. I mean, right. are we really spending all our time here for that? So, and now I'd also come from an environment where as a practicing attorney, 
the partners would say, look, we expect you to do the job and to get it done. And if that means you need to be here till midnight some weeks to get it done, great. If that means that you're in between cases or whatever, and you can leave at three in the afternoon and go play golf or take off on Friday and go play golf or whatever it was, that's great too. We trust you. You're an adult. You can get this done. And so I did chafe a bit at the fact that some nights I literally was sitting at my desk because I had not gotten basically tapped on the shoulder. And yes, so I did uh, chafe a bit at that. What I think is going to be interesting is with the virtual draft, that they just held and the response they got to footage of their kids running in the room as they're making the pick and whatever. I wonder if there are a lot of folks who are going, you know, we actually pulled this off remotely. I could totally go over our draft list from the beach or from wherever. And we can do this without all having to sit in the office for four months together. I hope that COVID recalibrates a lot of people in this, you know, in the sports world, and this is just my opinion, like your optic is so narrow because you're, you literally are judged in front of the whole world every, mm-hmm. you know, Saturday or Sunday or a couple times a week, depending on the sport, you know, front page of the newspaper or whatever, but there's so much more life to be lived. Right. And, and you know, you look at a guy like Bruce Arians at, at Tampa right now, and he's been pretty successful as a head coach and he doesn't have those rules. Right. Right, you know, and and it's created an environment where players want to be in his organization because of how he runs things. And he's right. not a, he's not like a he's positive, but he'll also ride your rear end. Mm-hmm. Totally. So he's he's a balanced he's a balanced act. But anyways, I hope that in this in the world of sports that we begin to look at things with a little bit different view. That it doesn't take sixteen hours a day to prepare for X job. Like you could probably get it done in eight to ten. I would totally think so. And and Joe Gibbs, I'm going to mess up the quote, but he said something that I, I heard 10, 15 years ago where he said something along the lines of, I'm so sorry that A, I slept on a cot in my office in Washington and that B, people found out and glorified it as the way to get ahead as a coach. Mm-hmm. And he said, I hate that that's a piece of my legacy. And of course, there's nobody more family oriented than Coach Gibbs and, and, and all that. And so it's, you know, it's ironic and unfortunate that that was one of the takeaways from that experience. Because I do think, you know, Tony, it, but it takes a, I think sports, you said, you're right, the optic, the way in which it's viewed. I think part of why the long hours, part of why you sometimes you, you don't do things that are unconventional is because you think, you know what, I may end up, this season may not go the way I want. And I don't want anybody to point at, either my work ethic or that, that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I think those two things drive a lot of people to go, well, you know what? Nobody's going to outwork me. And Frank DeFord one time, the late sports writer, said something like, you know, if there was any industry in which the CEO said, I cannot get my job done in 12 or 14 hours, I've got to put in 16 to 18, they'd go, you know what? We're going to fire you and find somebody a little smarter. <laughs> He said, but not football. That one's the one where we're like, great. We need you here the full 18 hours. So that is, in my opinion, fear-driven, risk-adverse behavior. Yes, totally. So you've been around some amazing coaches, and you've written some great books with one of the best ever. Right. There's somebody that's young and in, in any field right now that's wanting to climb the ladder. You know, There is going to be some grunt work, but how do you free yourself up psychologically to maybe make some take some chances that are going to be the difference between being average and being elite. Right. Well, I think part of it is that you've got to understand at some basic level, you've got to understand who you are and what matters to you. And in my first interview in Jacksonville, guy says to me, you know, the great thing about working in the NFL is that it gives you a chance to compete. And he said, it's a way I haven't been able to compete since I was playing in college, but now that I'm a front office, you know, in the front office, I can compete every week. And he said, and frankly, that's so much better than, you know, who wants to coach their daughter's softball team? And we laughed and I nodded and, and I had this pit in my stomach because I really wanted to break in. I had already had these two opportunities. I thought, you know, I really need to get this job with the Jaguars, but I'm sitting there going, but who I am is the person who wants to coach. I didn't have any kids at the time, but I'm like, I want to coach my kids in whatever they do. I want to spend the afternoons with them. That I, that's what I'd grown up seeing with my dad who practiced law, but he would take off in the afternoons to coach my teams. 
And so I sat there through the interview and really it should have been at some level, there should have been a sign that maybe this wasn't the right fit for me. And secondly, that I was able to look at what was important to me. And instead I felt like, well, I'm young. I need to push aside what's important to me. I'll fix it later. And instead you find yourself trying to sneak a peek of your child around a a hotel lobby plant because you're slipping around. And so I think part of it's knowing yourself and what's important to you and and standing firm in that. Part of it is there are times, seasons in life where there's grunt work, things to be done. But I think also it's just a part of being willing to say, you know, here's who I am and here are the lines. You know, I'll go, oh, you know, there are certain areas that I, I will compromise. I will, will do, ex- but certain areas of my life, I'm not going to compromise. But these things are hard. Tony had a story. And again, he's the head coach at the time, so it's easier. But Tony had stories about doing public service announcements. And he had agreed to do one. It was the week they were going to play the Patriots in the regular season. Both teams were 8-0 and or whatever. And Tony had agreed to do it two months in advance. It was going to be a Wednesday afternoon at 5 o'clock. And, and Tony knew, like you had just talked about, I need X number of hours during the week to prepare. I could stay 16 hours a day, but that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that. I need X hours. So yes, Wednesday afternoon at 5, I can, I can go do this PSA. But Wednesday rolled around two months later and he realizes we're playing the Patriots. And he said for a moment, he thought about canceling it because he thought if we lose and it comes out that I left the office at 445 to go record this thing, this is not going to look good. Mm. And he had to stop and confront, basically take a look in the mirror and say, no, this is who I am and this is what's important to me. And I'm not going to worry about any potential criticism if I'm doing the right thing. And sure enough, they lost. And, um, but it was for, and this is, I'll just skip ahead to the, uh, to the end of the story. He was on his way to his retirement press conference three years later, having done this PSA and forgotten all about it, about a, for an adoption foster home in Indianapolis. And as he's walking down the hall to his retirement press conference, he gets handed a letter that he reads on his way to the podium. And the letter says, based on your PSA of three years ago, we are now the parents of a 12-year-old boy who had never had his own bed. And so Tony's saying, you know, he's walking to the and he's thinking about all these things in his career and all these things he's proud of and he'll be sorry to have. And he said he got this letter of reminder of, oh my gosh, that's right. There's something bigger all the time. Wow. So he knew who he was. He could draw a line in the sand. And because of that, he benefited somebody else. He did. Now, the part of it that I think is hard for a lot of us is that we don't always get that letter. I mean, it would have been easy for those people to not write it or not get handed it or it didn't get through his assistant or whatever. So a lot of times we just have to go out and operate on faith that that what we're doing is for the right reasons and is paying off and is benefiting somebody else. But I think you absolutely have to remember who you are and what's important. And at some point you may realize, you know, I could have stayed on in Jacksonville and figured out a, a path through. But at some point I realized, you know what? It's okay for us to be different. It's okay for them to have different priorities and they want to run this thing a different way. And this is causing too much angst with me to to try to navigate life with my family. And so ended up going to Tampa and becoming a part of the Buccaneers. And and that's okay to realize at some point, you know what? I don't fit here. And it's not necessarily their fault or mine. It's just not a fit. So you go to the Bucs, you just drive a couple hours. Was it three? Yes, three hours, switched conferences, switched coasts, but I stayed in Florida. There you go. You're still yes. close to home. I am. Your, your I wife am. is probably excited about that. We were. We were very excited. And so our families could, she, you know, her family is driving over from Gainesville to Jacksonville. Now they're just driving the other way to Tampa, mine too. Now, who's the head coach at this time? So it's Tony Dungy. Okay. Now you meet Tony Dungy. All right. Yes. And now it, it you know, I'm used to the the kids kind of, not being around the office. And, and so at one point I'm sneaking my wife, Amy and our daughter in. And, and one of my buddies, my coworkers at the Bucks said, you've been here six months. You don't get it. Tony's kids are running up and down the mm-hmm. hall. They're doing their homework on the, you know, so anyway, I, it was just I a total laugh because I can understand I've been there and it's a horrible feeling. Right. Right. I think your wife's so. like, can I come see you at work? You're like, I don't know. like am i willing to roll the dice today right yeah right one of my buddies at tampa said i was like the the uh, rescued greyhound that i kept waiting to get in trouble and he's like nobody here is gonna hurt you you're okay 
Gosh, that's terrible. So anyway, Tony for a year there, and then he got fired. Mm. And I was so bitter. We had gone nine and seven, gone to the playoffs, lost to the Eagles, and Tony got fired. And it was really hard on me personally because I liked him so much, appreciated him so much. The season was tumultuous as far as, you know, we started off, I think, three and four. And so the Tampa Trib and the St. Pete Times are writing articles, will he be fired or... And so worried about that. I've just moved to Tampa. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to be, you know, moving after eight months after getting there? And Tony never stopped being Tony. I asked him one time and toward the end of the season, this probably December, the two of us were in the coach's locker room. And, and I said, um, how much I appreciated his witness in light of the circus and the way he just never changed who he was and what was important. And he said, just Total Tony off the cuff. You know, I would have stammered, hey, we just, you roll with the punches or you make the, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade or whatever. And Tony, so profound, he said, I really think there are times in life when God wants us in situations where people can see there's another way to respond. And it was, you know, so his view was, hey, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be in the middle of this maelstrom of just chaos and angst and whatever. And he later said to me, you know, look, my job's to coach. God's job is to tell me where. So if it's Tampa, great. If it's not, then that's fine. Um, mm. So he got fired and I was still distraught. <laughs> they left me. Tony gets fired. And then I'm showing the um, who's going to be the new general manager around our offices. And Bill Parcells is coming is what we've been told. And so they all went to the senior bowl, all the rest of the guys in scouting are current GM and, and they left me behind to welcome coach Parcells. And so wow. I'm supposed to give him a tour and get him settled and all this. And, and then they're going, we shouldn't have left Nathan though. Cause I'm, I've started to wear jeans to the office. I've quit shaving. <laughs> I'm so distraught that after being in this great environment with Tony, I'm thinking, Oh no. Cause of course, Coach Coughlin coming out of Bill Parcells' tree. Yep. I thought, I'm going right back to that setting. And so it ends up Coach Parcells decided not to come. And a month later, we got John Gruden. And so I had spent my last two years with John. Totally different environment. You know, we win a Super Bowl and had a really interesting two years with John. But then eventually the front office did completely change. They, they got our GM left. They fired the rest of us. And by then I'd had chances to go to the Bears, the Seahawks, the Falcons, and thought I've had two experiences with two different teams and in six years time and didn't go to law school thinking that I'd be moving every three years. So decided to just totally go a different direction. And so it was a, a neat six years and I really met some amazing folks, but then it was a great, a great time to make a transition. Wow. I mean, you went a Super Bowl. And then it's over. Right. That's kind of a good way to mic drop on this thing. <laughs> right. I, I mean, seriously. So you win a Super Bowl. What happens next? I mean, you're still not an author yet. How old are you at this point? So at this point, it is 2003. I'm 34, 35. Yeah. Okay. And 35 out of work, but... I've still got time on my contract. So I think this is perfect. I've been fired. I've got four months left on my contract, plenty of time to write a book and then see what's next. And is so that when to, it started? It is. It okay. Is. So I, I had a chance. To, I, I had an offer from a firm. Actually, we, we um, I almost headed into financial planning, wealth management, and, and had a chance to go to South Florida to do that. And then decided at the last minute not to do that and instead to write this book. So this is in the couple months after. And I, I told my wife, I thought that uh, a book about Tony Dungy could help people, that Tony had such a great work-life balance. He understood the priorities, all these things, that they could be helpful to me and people in sports and people like me. But I also saw from my friends from law school who had gone off to these firms in New York or gone off to wherever, that, that they, it wouldn't hurt them to have a sense of this perspective as well. And so I thought Tony's messages could really be helpful to a lot of folks. So how did Tony respond to this idea of a book? Absolutely not. Okay. I so think that's a direct quote. I've the, any, the Harvard I, negotiations come into play. You've been exactly. to North South 
your table. <laughs> right. So I fly to Indy and told him I wanted to, I had an idea about some writing I wanted to do. And uh, so could I meet with him? He was coaching the Colts at the time, of course. And, and we had still been in touch regularly. And he said, sure. And he had said years later, he said, you know, when you came up there, I thought you meant like you needed some leads because you wanted to become a sports writer or something, not you wanted to write a book about me. So I pitched it to him and he says, absolutely not. He said, nobody wants to read about me and I'm not sure I have anything worth sharing anyway. So the four months I had on my contract turned into three years of being unemployed. Holy cow. Yeah. So ended up working a little bit at our church, kind of a mercy hiring where they, they, <laughs> they took me The on. church had a mercy hire. That's <laughs> great. Did. Okay. They did. And they knew I was trying to work on this book. And Tony had said, hey, I'll help you do a leadership book. I'll help you do whatever. I'll be a piece of it. I just don't want it to be the Tony Dungy story that, that you know, I'll be a part of something bigger. And so I was going to do a leadership book on, um, on Tony and some other coaches I knew. And the problem was that shortly after I started, Bob Lamont, a longtime NFL agent who has a bunch of head coach clients, came out with a book about the leadership style of five of his clients. And I had a couple of publishers tell me, hey, look, this book only sold 12,000 copies, I think is what they told me. Yeah. But it really kind of put a block in that segment of the market. They're like, look, you're going to come out with a leadership book about coaches in the NFL. One just came out. And whether it's sold or not, that kind of space is taken. So I couldn't sell the book. And so even with Tony Helpin and other coaches, uh, Dom Capers in Houston, Mike Malarkey in Buffalo, Chan Gailey at Georgia Tech, I was in, the, in all their staff rooms and and no publisher wanted it. So three years of being unemployed, still talking to Tony every now and then about when, you know, when we talk about leadership principles for the book, I'd say, but you know, if you wanted to do one just about you, and he'd always say thanks, but no. And so then his son, Jamie, passed away, took his own life, two years into this three-year process for me. And Tony and I were together at the Senior Bowl 30 days after Jamie's death. And I, we were having lunch and talking about the leadership book and just talking about how we were doing and sharing. And, and I said, just by the way, for the record, you know, I know you've said no to the book about you. And I just wanted to let you know, I'm going to quit asking you because with Jamie and your family going through that and dealing with that, I don't know how I'd write about it. I don't know how, you know, I've never written a book, so I don't, you know, just, I'm not going to keep asking you and, and just know that's off the table. And Tony, to his credit, 30 days out from Jamie's death said, you know, I've had so many parents reach out to me that sadly, this is not uh, an isolated incident. And he said, I wonder if I wasn't coach of the Colts, would I have gotten so much assistance over the last 30 days? Maybe there are things I need to share, things I need to open up about. Maybe I can help other people. So we didn't commit to it then, but we just kind of, he left the door cracked open. 10 months later, they won the Super Bowl. And Tony had gotten such a response to that whole experience that he said, okay, I'll do it. At that point, he had 80, he told me one time he had 85 writers call his agent wanting to do books. And Tony said, no, I've got the guy. I worked with him in Tampa and, and people That's were like, a lot of trust. Oh, it's a ton of trust. And, and he said to me, uh, I said at one point, how crazy that was, how much trust, you know, I didn't tell him then <laughs> at in those time. terms, <laughs> right. But later I said, you know, that's nuts. And he said, and he laughed and said, you know, and the only thing you'd ever done in our time in Tampa was spreadsheets because we were doing, you know, it's amazing analysis. to be Nathan, like here's the head coach of the Tampa Bay bucks. And what was your title? Director of legal affairs. Right. And how did, how did he even end up giving you any time? Like, like most people don't understand, like may not understand, or just think about your corporate environment, the CEO spending time with, somebody in the law department. Right. It's right. just not normal. Right. And it was, you know, in, in, in Tampa at the time, it was still small enough to where we were having one buck. Yep. It was the old one buck. Yeah. And the one that, for those of you who might not know, the facility was built in 1976 back when they had a head coach, a defensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator, and, and, you know, one other coach. And um, so we had, no space, and we were right on top of each other. And then we'd have regular personnel meetings. So we had some chance to interact. But but the fact that I I would, you know, he got fired, he goes to Indy, I'm still there under John Gruden. And I'm calling him on 
a Wednesday night as they're getting ready to play a playoff game on Sunday. And I just want to leave him a voicemail to wish him well. And he picks up and we start chatting. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I didn't mean for you to have to talk to me. Yeah. And no, 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 <laughs> this is fine. We're done with our prep. This is, you know, this is part of my, I work 10 hours and I'm done for Wednesday. So no, just a totally remarkable person. And the way he, the way he interacts with people, it's, he, he does a great job. It, it doesn't matter how quote unquote important you are, that he sees us all as being created as, as having special worth and value. And I'm always try I always try, I should say, to remember that, that I've gotten, and I don't mean to jump ahead a little bit, but I've been with him on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno on We Flew and Did David Letterman. And when I say we did, I sat in the green room while he was on the show. But I, I would talk to the producers, I would talk to the directors, whatever. And I've had, I don't know how many people tell me of every celebrity we've had or of every just whomever, he is the most down to earth. That if you hadn't told me, hey, this guy's a Super Bowl champion, I would have no idea that he's somebody I should have been impressed by, that he just kind of treated us all in this way. So he's just such a neat person. Wow, that is so cool. I mean, that is not to steal the title of a book, but that's uncommon. Right. Yes. And when Quiet Strength came out, Mm -hmm. that was the perfect title. Right. Because there was a lot of, you know, the coaching world, there was like, you know, you're either a Nick Saban type or you're a so-and-so type or you're a Dungy type. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like the polar opposites. And sometimes, you know, the word meekness comes to play in my mind. You know, people think meek is weak, but really meek is strength under control. Mm -hmm. And Tony Dungy, like he was a very focused individual, but he was, he was strong, you know, Mm -hmm. how did you come up with that title? Well, I would love to take credit for it, but I can't. The interesting thing behind the title to me is that, you know, I'd shared about three years of trying to write this story and nobody wanted a book on leadership. So then they win the Super Bowl. And all of a sudden, publishers are knocking down his door. Writers are knocking. People at Sports Illustrated want to write it. And Tony's saying, no, I've got the guy. And so we met with Tony, narrowed it down to six. And we met with these publishers at around Tony's dining room table in Indianapolis. They all flew in. They all had an hour. They went through their, their spiel. And one of the two finalists that came out of that pitched the idea of titling the book Quiet Strength. And we ended up not going with them. And, but we thought it was such a perfect title. And so we said to the one we chose, Tyndale House Publishers out of Chicago, we said to them, hey, we don't really know. We've never done a book. We have no idea what we're doing, which would become clear when we agreed to give them the manuscript in 30 days. Um, <laughs> but we said, we don't know what we're doing. Can we take a title from this other company? Because it seems to fit so well. And they said, you can. You can't copyright a title. You can't whatever. But if you don't mind, we'd rather not go down that road. Because, uh, you know, obviously, if we had misgivings, they, they were like, yeah, we don't want to start off on that. Let us come up with a different title that you really like. We said, great. So they brainstormed forever. And we're coming up with all these titles. And we're comparing them all against Quiet Strength. And we're going, no, 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 no. And finally, they said, you know, there's one that we think really makes sense. And and they pitched Quiet Strength. And we went, okay, we'll take that one. Yeah. So <laughs> It's a brand. I mean, what people don't understand about brand is brand is not a logo. It's it's a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And when you see Quiet Strength and you see the picture of Tony Dungy, the gut feeling is, oh, heck yeah. Like, I want to trust this guy. Yeah. And and like you said, not soft, not easy. No. Um, you know, if guys missed appearances, you know, famous story about Buccaneers guys, his first year missing appearances to go read in elementary schools and him coming down on them and just saying how disappointed he was. And that if they're going to be a member of the Buccaneers and really truly want to stay a member of the Buccaneers, that they're going to have to live up to their responsibilities. And then realizing that he was serious enough to either cut him or, or whatever else, find him. And people do often think of being quiet as, as being weak. But Tony was always, you know, it didn't matter if you were, and you can think of some of the stars we had in Tampa. But whether you were Derek Brooks or Warwick Dunn or Keon Johnson or Warren Sapp, that if there was a team rule, it applied to everybody. And I had a guy tell me one time, well, you know what? It's just training camp dinner. And I really can't expect star player X to just come in and check in if he wants to go to a fancy dinner out of town or something that night. And I looked at him like he was nuts. 
And I'm like, well, Tony did. I mean, Tony understood that if there were rules, they applied to people and, and right. it wasn't weak. And people thought, well, he's a player's coach or whatever, but he had, I think part of what made him a player's coach is the players realized that he was going to treat them all as being important, but not indispensable. And if there were rules, they applied. And so that's how he was going to conduct himself. So strong, but yes, quiet. Mm. When the book comes out, I mean, here's, here's what I'm thinking in the back of my head. You go three plus years of basically being unemployed. Right. You're working for the church, as you quote, say, a mercy hire. <laughs> right. I mean, that's tough. My dad's an author. And uh-huh. I understand, like, when you write a book, there's nobody paying the bill, especially when you haven't proven yourself out. It's not like you had this huge advance. Right. Well, there was because of Tony's. Okay. Um, there was a good advance because of Tony's position. Okay. Uh, and the fact that he's the defending Super Bowl champ. But I really thought it was going to be a one-off that here I, you know, I knew Tony Dungy's the only person I knew worth writing a book about basically right. was kind of, and, and I thought I felt called to do it because I thought it could help people. And then I was going to go back to, I didn't know what practicing law or calling the Seahawks and begging them, or I wasn't <laughs> sure what was next. I did have a couple of coaches along the way toward the end of that three years mention that I had negotiated their contract on behalf of the Bucks. Would they, would I consider being their agent? And so I started to represent a couple of coaches, but that was all kind of, you know, lead time because they were in the middle of a contract. And so I wasn't going to see anything from that until a year or two down the line or whatever. Right. So again, that was kind of speculative, but I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen, but I thought, okay, I'll write one book and then I don't know what's next. Instead, we sold, they thought it could sell, those, those post-Super Bowl books sell thirty to 40,000 copies. But they thought maybe maybe a hundred thousand because of Tony and and who he was and that it would appeal to more markets. And within a year, we'd sold a million. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and there's currently three million in print. And so, a year out, they came and and asked if we'd be willing to write another book. And Tony said, "Well, I, I've only got one life story, so I there's nothing <laughs> left to do." That's so humble. Uh, yes, totally. And so they said, "Well, what about?" What about a book of values? What about, you know, if you were going to drop your child off at college was kind of the premise, what would you want to make sure you had instilled in them before you dropped them off? And so that became the book Uncommon. What does it mean to live an uncommon life and to go through the narrow gate instead of the wide gate that, that the world tells you to walk through? And how do you live that different life? And, and so that became book number two. I can't tell you how many coaches' offices I've been in where that book has been in their office. That's so cool. I mean secular coaches like they, they don't have a maybe they don't really live like a they don't really have a faith they live by but that book is in their office i've even seen the devotional in their office uh-huh. yeah. which is cool just shows the just how well that book connects with people mm-hmm. and i loved it i mean it connected with me in an incredible way i mean both those books are fantastic but sorry i just wanted you to know that that that, that book on common again great title uh-huh I mean, yeah. just great job. Well, thanks. And, you know, that was that was very fun. I mean, not that quiet strength wasn't, and, and I'm, you know, thrilled to have been a part of all these. Uncommon was different from the standpoint of Tony and I flew to Indy, and, and his family was out of town. And so the two of us sat in his family room with a Pacers game on. And so we're watching the Pacers, and we're going – well, I'd want to make sure I'd want to make sure my my children were honest. And so I've got a legal pad and I'm just writing down words. And so we totally brainstormed what would become uncommon. So when you write these books, like how does this look? Like how are you pulling this out of Tony Dungy? Like you said you're watching a Pacers game, but it's got to be more than a 3-hour basketball game. Well, it was. And so we got kind of you'd get the rough, we probably got I don't know, 15 key concepts. And then go back home and start to think through those and realize that, okay, actually that leads to four more or whatever. And then we probably had a list of 40 words and ended up calling that down to 31. And, but going back and forth and then trying to figure out how do these fit together. And, and, you know, Tony is again, so thoughtful and, and just so methodical in the way he thinks through things. And so a lot of give and take back and forth and, and just sharing ideas. And so very open, very fun to do that kind of thing. And then, then trying to figure out, okay, now we've got, we're talking about integrity, 
in the workplace? And, you know, what does that look like? And Tony, do you have any stories about that? So he has this great story about, about being sent or being called before a Pittsburgh-Denver playoff game where he's the defensive coordinator of the Steelers. They call him, excuse me, a sports writer called him from something they saw in a closed practice in Denver. And a sports writer called him and said, hey, Tony, you've always been so nice to me in Denver, and I just wanted to give you a heads up on a, on a trick play the Broncos are running. And so that becomes a part of Uncommon. Thankfully, Tony, you know, is thinking about this, remembers this story. We're chewing on things. And it takes a while. You got to talk about, you know, different stories, different things. And then nuggets like this come out. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is great. By the and, way, that is every coach's paranoid worst nightmare. Sure. Sure. And, and it really was a paranoid worst nightmare from the standpoint of having it your own play leaked. You, you're, you know, you're going to have somebody for the press there and they're going to share right. it. That right. is that is always a thought on their mind. Absolutely. And so, but it turned into Tony's worst nightmare on the flip side. You know, what do I do with this? Yeah. Right? I've told my kids to behave a certain way. I've told my players to behave a certain way, but I've got this responsibility to my players, to the Steelers are signing my paychecks, but I, I should not have this information. And Tony decided that he was going to coach out the rest of that week, knowing what he should know, not knowing what he actually did know. Mm. So he doesn't tell his team about it's it's going to be, and I can't remember who threw the pass. It was probably 85, but it was a halfback pass. Ends up going for a touchdown in the late second quarter. And Tony watches it unfold, and he realizes they're lining up. This has to be that play. Sure enough, Elway pitches to whomever. Anyway, touchdown. And Tony's sitting there in the press box thinking, I think I'm going to be ill. And then he looks down and there's a flag holding on Denver, illegal man downfield, and the play comes back. And uh, I forgot as Tony about and I that. Say, wow. Yeah. As Tony and I say, you know, you don't always get saved by the flag when you do the right thing, that sometimes mm. the consequences aren't good. But that was a great story that came out. And so it takes a little while to mine those stories. The other part that's hard when you've got Tony or it happened again with Tim Tebow, it happened with James Brown, is that when you've got somebody who's humble, sometimes it's hard to either A, get them to remember this or tell the story. And then B, when you're writing a book in the first person, how do you, how do you say that? Like Tim's dad said to me one time, you know, Tim won 17 awards his sophomore year, the year he won the Heisman. Tim won, or his junior year, the year he won the Heisman, he, he had all these awards. And Tim's dad's telling me that, you know, I didn't even know about all these awards until I was helping him clean out his locker after the season and 14 of them are shoved up under the bench. And so, you know, Bob, as, as I would certainly have been as well, was understandably proud of these and said, you got to put these in the book. And I said, well, okay, but you got to understand that if Tim isn't telling you his dad about them all and telling you to tell him, how's he going to tell the world in a book that sounds authentic to being who Tim Tebow is? And so we had that with, you know, Tony got in a fight's not the right word, but a discussion with his brother-in-law, Tony's wife's brother, flew in for Tony's first Buccaneer game. And the Bucks had put him up in a, you know, one bedroom suite or whatever. So he had the, the living room and the, so, so Tony, yeah, the Tony's brother-in-law stayed down at Team Snack, which, you know, runs till 11 at night yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And the brother-in-law comes up to the room and goes to get into the pullout couch to sleep on it. And Tony's sleeping on the pullout couch. And Tony's brother-in-law is going, Tony, you're, you're the head coach of the Buccaneers. You can't sleep on the pullout. You get the bedroom. And Tony said, no, no, you're my guest. You take the bedroom. And so a great story, but I didn't put it in quiet strength because somebody might think, well, Tony's making himself look good. Right. I That's Tony, amazing. I, the amazing. head coach, first game. First game. And and so I think, I think Tony finally took the bedroom because I think his brother-in-law said, you know, your wife and she's going to kill me, her brother. If I end up making you sleep on the couch. Man, I feel and like a terrible him. human being right now. Cause I, <laughs> if it was my brother, I'd be like, tomorrow's my first head coaching game, right. <laughs> game as a head coach right. in the NFL. I need a good night's sleep. I'll see you later. Yeah. That's yeah. humility right there. It is. We ended up, we, we ended up sticking it in maybe mentor leader, maybe uncommon. I, I strong-armed Tony into putting it in and tried to write it in a way that didn't make it look like he was trying to point out how humble yeah. he was. Well, you, yeah. you, you mentioned Tim Tebow. Right. What was Tebow mania like? So we wrote the book his first year in Denver. Oh, my goodness. And it came out right toward, it came out right before training camp 
of his second season. So his first year, he only played three games toward the end of the year. And we had been talking throughout that and then put it together. And then it came out over the summer. And so then that was the year when, you know, they would do nothing for three quarters and a bunch of incomplete passes. And then all of a sudden in the fourth quarter or in the last couple of minutes of the fourth quarter, they'd complete every pass. Demarius Thomas would make ridiculous catches. They'd end up with a, a strip sack fumble touchdown on defense or something. And Denver kept winning in just unbelievable fashion. And you could see on Amazon, which does the hourly sales and stuff, every week you could see it peak Sunday night and into Monday, the sales of his book, where it would kind of it would kind of die down a little bit during the week. And then it would Do you take track off. it quarter by quarter. <laughs> I was. I was trying to yeah. and and I remember several times like turning games off or being, you know, I'd I'd be having dinner and somebody's like, Oh my gosh, look at Denver. They're they're getting killed this week. And I'm like, Well, it had done sometime. And then of course they'd win again. And and so the um, the public relations folks at Denver said they were getting a thousand media requests a week to talk to Tim. And they would grant ten. Right. And you know, three two TV interviews and eight print reporters or whatever. And so just hundreds and hundreds from around the world of people want to talk to Tim. And so with this new book out, Tim and the publisher came up with a plan that they'd send me. And so <laughs> I was on behalf on this, of Tim Tebow. On behalf of Tim <laughs> Tebow, yeah. right? To talk about all things Tebow. So I was on the CBS Morning Show. I was on Fox and Friends. They flew me out to Los Angeles to do a piece on football and faith. Tony was on it as well, but he was in the studio in Tampa. And I was sitting right across from Piers Morgan as Piers is asking me about, is Tim really like this in person? And can he really be this nice guy? And just a, it was a, it was a very fun fall, at least for me. Wow. Uh, Cause I, I was more than happy to do those. Uh, in fact, they, they, one of these uh, studios sent a car. I was vacationing in North Carolina in the mountains of Western North Carolina. And the closest TV studio was two hours away. And this is before we were all doing zoom interviews and the like, and they wanted me on the set. And so some, I think it was uh, CBS or NBC sent a car to get me at two in the morning in the mountains to drive me to, um, I thought, you know, it's pretty heady stuff for a guy who got rejected from his only creative writing class. <laughs> did you, did you ever have to work out with Tim Tebow? I did not. I okay. was able to, um, <laughs> so we did, he wanted to, at one of our first meetings, he had just worked out. And so he said, let's sit in the sauna and you can take notes. And that lasted <laughs> for about two seconds before my yeah, pages but- all... <laughs> <laughs> just a sloppy mess. Right. And and wow. it wasn't doing me any good, right? Because I hadn't worked out. It's not like a mm. writer really needs to spend a lot of time working the kinks out. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we learned quickly. We couldn't do the sauna. So what a fantastic story. I mean, the you know, your 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 dream of being a, a professional baseball player may have fizzled out early, but you uh you had the op- you know, you switched to football, but then you had the opportunity to work with and write the stories of some of the greatest coaches and athletes of our time that's that's pretty that's a that's a blessing that's a really amazing blessing no question i mean it's it's one of those things where tony and i talked about it in writing quiet strength where you know you have the reluctant author the writer who has no idea what he's doing and we went with a publishing house that was not one of the huge new york publishers who wanted to do it and at the end of the day you're like you know what kind of cool about that is none of us can take any credit for it that it was a team effort. A lot of things came into it, but boy, did we see God's fingerprints on mm. a lot of what happened. And, and it's been like that for me that you, you never, every now and then my daughters will start to get concerned that they don't know exactly what they want to do. And I'm saying, well, if you've paid any attention, <laughs> my career path has been a mess. Yeah. And, and yet these doors have opened in ways that have been great where I don't fly out on Christmas day to, to go yet. I'm able to be, related to some of these things that I enjoy and in contact with these people, but I don't have to travel on Christmas day for the Jaguars Titans game that I did one year or other things are like that. And so it's just really been remarkable the way some of these things have opened up and such a blessing. Not only are you an accomplished author, you're a great speaker. I've had the opportunity to see you myself and you're fantastic. What are you excited about right now? Like, what are you cooking up? What are you working on? I mean, COVID is, 
in the past six months, if somebody, if you haven't pivoted something or if you haven't come up with an idea, to me, it's in some ways it's wasted time. I know mm-hmm. personally I have. I started this podcast, for goodness sakes, you know. So mm-hmm. what what has come out of COVID for you? What is any flames gotten kindled or anything like that? Yeah, it's been a mixed, it's been a mixed blessing. So you were gracious enough to have me come up and speak to all the staff and coaches and and all that in Williamsburg. And that was a blast. And I've been doing a lot more of that. And then of course that just totally stopped. Except that one of the neat things is that we've all learned how to to do these remote online meetings. And so I've been able to do a fair amount of that and and then leveraging that in ways that I wouldn't have have imagined. Before I forget though, a couple of and I sadly I can't talk about them in any detail, but I've had two books in the last three weeks that have come out of the total blue that are very fun. And again, neat people where you, you're pinching yourself thinking, you know, they hung up saying, I'm so glad I had a chance to talk to you. And you're thinking that this is insane. <laughs> uh, that this is, you know, all the blessings are flowing my way and I'm so grateful, but, but it's just been a neat couple of neat experiences there. But then on the speaking front, I did something two weeks ago at a the athletic director at the International School of Vienna puts together these athletic director forums for there. It turns out there are a lot of these folks similarly situated, whether it's in Belgrad or Helsinki or wherever. And then it turns out they're in Lima, Peru and Bangkok and all, wow. over, the, all over the world. And thankfully, all these athletic directors on this call spoke English, which is, you know, I barely speak English. I certainly <laughs> don't speak anything else. And so I was able to do a, a talk on the soul of a team. Tony's in my latest book and talked right. about teamwork and what that means as an athletic department. In fact, I drew on a lot of the, uh, the notes from you. I pulled out that uh, from, from our time. when Because mm-hmm. it's a little bit different when you're talking to a sports team versus you're talking to administrators and what their own teams might look like and how they can form a team themselves. And anyway, I um, long story short, had a chance to speak on this one call to people who were literally all over the globe. And it's noon for me, but some of these people are midnight in Asia and other people are eight in the morning behind me in South America. And it was really a neat experience. And then I've gotten people afterwards saying, okay, we're, as soon as this COVID thing lifts, we're flying you to Bangkok. And then we want you to go on a circuit of Southeast Asia and speak at these different schools. And then the folks in Europe are saying the same thing. And so my wife's saying, you know, enough of this speaking in Illinois, let's get over to hey, let's go. She's like, <laughs> me too. I'm coming right. with you. Yes, that's great, man. Yes. That's, my parents, my parents did a lot of that. Okay. Yeah, my they would go, they would blend it with some like missionary work, but they would go for like three weeks when I was growing up. And my dad would do some stuff with like Campus Crusade, and then he would speak at all these universities all over the place. And he would bring my mom, and uh-huh. it was like part ministry, part their their time together. Mm-hmm. And uh, you should definitely do that. We, you know, it's funny. We've done some of that. Nothing that exotic, uh-huh. but we've done some of that, and it and it feels. It's funny how enjoyable and fun it is to do those things. And then at the same time, again, it's one of those pinch me things. You're like, wait, I'm I'm on vacation. Like, this is <laughs> this is all a business expense, and you know, it's it, you know, all of my travel turns out to be and and it's so it's it's a great way to travel and do those things. But there's still part of me that's like. This feels like this feels like uh, I'm you know this feels too good to be true that I'm vacationing uh, while conducting business. Thank you, but, Uncle uh, Sam. Right, exactly. Yeah, no question. Yeah, no, it's totally cool. American capitalism, I love it. That's right. And going back to my time in in Jacksonville, where where to be at work meant to be in an office, mm. or maybe on a practice field, but to be in an office and staying in an office. Now to be, you know, traveling somewhere and thinking I'm actually at work now, getting a chance to speak to you know, 500 high school kids and the energy that comes from all that, it's really a neat way to look at work and the way we can impact others. So it's just a, it's just been a lot of fun to have it unfold this way. COVID is, uh, it's taken a toll on people, but I think mm-hmm. it's also opened up their, their minds to what could be. And uh, if, if you're willing to sit in that uncomfortableness, mm-hmm. like I think there's a lot of things that are available to us that we can kind of start charting a different path. And for me personally, it's maybe cherish relationships and yeah. being able to do this podcast has been, it's been really awesome because I get to connect with people because I'm a relationship driven person. 
and you know you're getting to reconnect and hear other people's stories and so it's just neat to see how God's worked in your life taking you from Duke to Harvard to the NFL to best-selling author to now you're going to take your wife and go speak all over Southeast Asia and Europe so it's it's pretty right. it's pretty amazing no it's been great uh you know it's funny I was I was um um rereading and this will show you how humble I am and, and not at all like Tony Dungy. <laughs> I was rereading an article that ran about me in the New York Times not too long ago. I was going to send it to somebody and I started reading it again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is so like, man, I was starting to preen a little bit thinking, man, I really have mm-hmm. I really have nailed it. And about halfway through the article, the uh, the author says uh, Nathan started at Duke, then went to Harvard. And then in what can only be called some of the greatest downward mobility ever. Ended up, um, you know, and he kind of went through a fire by the, ja- or, you know, left the Jaguars. Jeez. The but it was, he was being tongue in cheek, yeah. but he was just kind of saying, and I, and I had a, a coworker in Tampa who said one time, you know, it's like you were up by 14 and all of a sudden now that you're getting fired, you're down seven. How did you squander this lead you had in life? Wow. And it's, and it's really interesting how different doors get opened and that sometimes, you know, this COVID thing, totally tough for a whole lot of people. And like you said, mental health and other issues, so much stress out there and don't want to minimize that at all. But boy, I've had some doors open that I couldn't have imagined would have opened. Mm. And in the first month, I kind of was in a bit of a pity party because my speaking engagements were canceled. And, and so you find yourself looking through that lens of how I always saw the world before then. And well, if I can't speak, then I can't speak. And so I'll just sit here. And then realize that there are other ways to to do this and other ways to to figure all this out. So anyway, total blessing in so many ways, whether I'm downwardly mobile or not. Um, I love that downward mobility. <laughs> I will definitely try to work that into my next conversation. Well, Nathan, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on today. You're an awesome friend, somebody that I look up to. And uh, I'm just so excited for what's coming next down the line. I can't wait to buy these two books and, uh, and, to, and to continue the improbable upward mobility of Nathan Whitaker. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for your Eric. time. Yeah. Great to be with you again. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.